Thanks, Angie, and good morning, everybody, whether you're here today or whether you're watching um, online. Let me pray for us. Our Lord God, we desire your will. Your law is written in our hearts. So today, help us see what Jesus has done, that we might worship you rightly and joyfully through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sometimes look at the around you and say to yourself, wow, this is just a different world. Now, I was born in 1971. So back then, phones had dials on them and you were tethered to that phone with a cord and you could only move, if you got one of those phones with the really long cords, which some people will remember, you could actually move a couple of metres, but otherwise you had to kind of walk in a circle just near, near where the phone was tethered. Of course, now phones are, are small, are mobile, contain your music, your television, your encyclopaedia, your camera, your bank, and pretty much a whole shopping centre, all contained on your little phone. Now, technology is the easy place to go when we think about how life has changed. But it's not just technology. You know, back in the 70s, you'd go outside about this time of year in springtime and you would cover yourself in oil so that the, the sun would burn you quicker. So that way you could be nice and brown and leathery by the time Christmas came around because that was healthy. Now, of course, we have sun prints, SPF 100+, plus, long sleeves, hats, moisturiser. It's a different world. Also, back in the 70s, there was smoking on planes. Now you can't even smoke in a pub. Shops closed at midday on a Saturday and were not open at all on a Sunday. I mean, that seems miles away to our current existence. And you know, in, this is the one that blows me away. In 1977, a three-bedroom house in Putney would cost you $22,000. Now it costs you $2.1 million. Short time, big changes. We live in practically a different world to the one I grew up in. Now, let's take ourselves back to Israel's worship. Now, when you were listening last week and you were hearing about their worship, could you picture yourself there? Hearing the noises, smelling the smells, the bleating of the animals, the sizzle of the altar, the smoke that was a mixture of barbecue and the Maya perfume section the shining um, gold and bronze and stone of the temple building itself, the trumpet sounding, the singing, the reading of the Hebrew scriptures, crowds pouring in um, at various times of the year and filling the city of Jerusalem for the festivals. I mean, and everybody, and I mean everybody, resting on the Sabbath day and then going to the temple. We live in a very different world to ancient Israel, don't we? As Christians, we're God's people. We worship exactly the same God as ancient Israel did. But what is the same about our worship? There's no sizzling altar, no burning incense, no baking of holy bread, no priests cutting up animals and offering sacrifices, no temple to offer the sacrifice in, no food laws, no restrictions on types of clothes, that we're allowed to wear. Even the Sabbath itself seems to have changed in some sorts of ways. We don't worship in the same place. In fact, most Christians don't even worship on the same continent. 
So why not? How can we be worshipping exactly the same God who presumably is the same and hasn't changed and yet how can our worship be so very, very different? Well, the hints that something about worship was going to change is even seen in the Old Testament itself. See, as we saw last week, the problem with Israelite worship was that they, in the end, they just ended up going through the motions. Remember, their their, their hearts were far from God. They might honour Him with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. And so their worship became worthless. And so God makes it clear through the prophets that a change would be in the air. And so Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And this is what we read in the prophet Ezekiel. He wrote this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God promises, do you see what's happening there? God's promising that he will change people from the inside by his spirit so that their worship of him would actually be true and genuine. No longer will they worship according to the old covenant with Moses, but they'll worship according to a new and better covenant. So now if you fast forward from that time of Ezekiel, about 600 years after Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we come to the passage that we looked at last week from John chapter 4. Remember when Jesus was meeting the woman at the well and he says this woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth is coming and has now come. The change that the prophets hinted at of true, spiritual, perfected worship, Jesus says that time is now upon you. Soon, Jesus says, the temple is actually going to be completely irrelevant. And the reason it is going to be irrelevant, it was standing right in front of the woman. It's, it was him. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah had come. The living temple, God actually present in the flesh amongst his people. The one who would usher in the new covenant would do it not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own perfect blood. People won't worship in the temple anymore. They will worship through Jesus himself. He will become the heart of worship. So it is through him that we can express our allegiance to God in spirit and in truth. And this is the point that is made so powerfully in that 
second reading for us from Hebrews chapter 10. And in fact, it's throughout the whole book. So the truth is, is that Jesus is where we meet with God. Have a look at these verses. The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right of hand of the majesty in heaven. Um, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary, that's like the temple, the tabernacle, made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself and now to appear for us in God's presence. What's more, Jesus is the perfect mediator, our great high priest, because he actually truly represents our humanity in the presence of God in the way that an animal could never represent or or, or more like a a flawed, human, um, sinful priest. So have a look at these. It was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, he's truly like us. But chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but is without sin. That's the one who can truly and perfectly represent us. And because he is already in the presence of God the Father, risen from the dead, he can represent us forever. Because Jesus is also the perfect sacrifice himself. Um, Verse 13 of chapter 9, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's Israel's worship. Well, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And, just as Jeremiah prophesied, Jesus brings a new and better covenant as well that supersedes the old one. Hebrews chapter 8. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to Israel's priests as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Do you see that transformation that's taken place? And that means that all of those, when you supersede something, the old isn't necessary anymore. All those old elements are no longer required. Who needs priests and temples and repeated sacrifices when he has fulfilled them all? He's done all our our worshipping for us. He is forever the one true perfect worshipper. He has done what we could never do and perfectly pleased his Father on our behalf. So the ritual fulfilled and the attitude perfected. And that means one more very important thing about worship for us as Christians. There is no distance anymore. You remember in the old one where there's, it was drawn near, but there was always a sign of difference. 
that difference has been removed. Hebrews 4 verse 16, think about these wonderful words. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, the the barrier of our sin has been perfectly dealt with. The offence that needed atoning for has been atoned for. Through faith in Christ, our one perfect worshipper, we have now unimpeded access to God. In other words, in Christ, our lives perfectly please Him. And this is the new reality that's guaranteed for us by the dwelling of God's own Holy Spirit in us as believers. Have a look at these great words from Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So not only do we have the Son of God worshipping for us, we have God's own Holy Spirit uniting with us, us with Him, living in us, shaping us, transforming us from the inside. We can worship God with joy and with wonderful confidence and God Himself is with us even as we do it. Okay. So, Christ and the Holy Spirit have transformed our worship completely. So, what do we do now? How how do we express our allegiance to God now? In our spiritual worship, how are we to act? What should our attitude be? Well, perhaps we need to go back and ask a prior question. Why would God do all of this? For us. Well, remember last week. Why did he do it for Israel? God powerfully saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. Why? With the express purpose that they worship him. And that worship was described by the law of Moses and encompassed every aspect of their life. You remember that? Well, all of that was a shadow pointing to the fully embodied reality of salvation that would happen through Jesus Christ. So, now that we're free from our slavery to sin, now that we have the true and certain hope of eternal life, now we have new hearts and a new spirit and we have a fuller knowledge of God because we have seen Him in Christ, what kind of worship do you think God wants from us? Will worshipping in spirit and in truth have a lesser goal than worshipping under the law. It was whole of life then. Is it going to be an hour and a half of our week now? It was whole of heart then. Is it half-hearted now? 
We've been liberated from the Old Testament cultic worship. We've been shown blessing upon blessing. How much stronger then should our allegiance to God be now? How much more willingly and readily should we humble ourselves before our God and seek to do his will? Because we can. How much more honour and glory should um, our souls be bursting to bring to Jesus Christ, our Saviour? We've been saved to live lives of worship, worshipful, wholehearted lives for our Saviour Jesus, our King. What does spiritual worship look like? Well, Paul puts it neatly and clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. See how much is captured in those two verses. How do we express our allegiance? Well, we offer our whole bodies to God. It's like, because of what you have done for me, my God, take all of me. Take all of me, all that I am, all that I have. I give them in service to you. See, now that we are truly free in our worship, we don't need to be paused to make sure we worship. As if we were children that needed a school teacher to map it all out for us and, map us, and, and make us do it under the threat of punishment. Because that's what the Old Testament law did. That was its function. It was like a schoolmaster. We're under grace. So we willingly, from the heart, dedicate our whole lives to God and try and ponder what we can do, think through, explore what we can do to worship Him. And notice that there, that we're living sacrifices. Our lives are to continually be an offering. And what kind of offering? A holy offering. So set apart and dedicated to Him. A pleasing offering. In other words, we're wanting to bring God joy with our lives. You see, it's not just the worship that needs to be transformed, it's the worshipper. Spiritual worship is worship off the leash. And how do we grow as people who continually dedicate ourselves to pleasing God? Well, the, the, the change actually needs to start up here in the way we think. Worship doesn't mean switching off your mind in some sort of state of ecstasy or something like that. It means switching on your mind. God still cares about how we worship Him. The difference is, so should we. Being different to the world and not following in its rebellious footsteps is fundamental to holy and pleasing worship. And so that means we need to intelligently and thoughtfully search after and soak up the Word of God and ponder it and seek to understand it, that our minds might be made new by Him 
and therefore our lives transformed by him. So, does that mean that every, if if we offer our bodies, does that mean every single thing that we do is worship? So, back to last week's question, is running worship? Is scratching your leg worship? Is, do we fry eggs for Jesus? Well, Well, the short answer is no. Just because worship is to involve our whole lives does not mean that everything is worship. That is to make the expression meaningless. Worse still, I actually think it it profanes, that is, it domesticates an extremely important aspect of holiness. And anyway, it's not what Romans 12 is talking about. See, worship is conscious and deliberate expression of allegiance, okay? So, it's the offering of oneself. It, It is a conscious thing you do. You are offering yourself. You know that you're doing it. The mind's got to be involved in the process. So the short answer is no. The long answer is possibly. Okay, if you're running to raise money for Bibles, well, that might be worship. Probably is. If you're frying eggs to provide a meal for someone who's fallen on hard times to show them the love of Jesus, that might be worship. Scratching yourself, haven't been able to come up with a way that scratching yourself is actually worship, so probably not. Now, worship is something that we do as individuals, but it's, it's also something we do together. And so next week what we're going to do is we're going to focus on how we worship. In fact, the answer to does worship have a pinnacle, a peak, that this series is on about is going to be yes, and we're going to look at that next week. But to finish today, I, w- I want us to consider three particular challenges for personal worship and I want to give you an encouragement as well. So, the, the first challenge for personal worship is part-time allegiance. For some people, worship is just about Sundays or, or maybe your growth group. They go to church and do their worship thing and then as soon as they get back into the car, it's bleep this and up yours and while you ogle a person walking down the street while you're on your way to rob a bank. Um, well, maybe that's a bit extreme, probably not. But, but you know, you kind of get the idea that, that there is a piety of turning up and then you get back into the rest of your life and it's as if the two just don't meet. You know, holiness hasn't made it to the home. Devotion doesn't enter the everyday. Zeal to ponder and seek after God's good, pleasing and perfect will dissipates as, like air through an open car window, the world floods back in. There is a word for that kind of worship, and it's called hypocrisy. You can't have a Sunday life and a different weekday life, and for that life of worship to be pleasing to God. Allegiance is allegiance. Your wife or your husband, if you're married, would not tolerate part-time faithfulness and neither will God. Let not God say of you, he or she honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And and if that's what you're picking up as you reflect upon how your life is at the moment as as a Christian, well, it's time to repent And it's time to rededicate your life, and this time, 
all of it, to God. I mean, and the wonderful grace is you can because Jesus has died on the cross for you. So if that's you, there's repenting that needs to do and there's new habits that need to start. The second challenge is half-hearted allegiance. What's the difference between half-hearted allegiance and part-time allegiance? Well, I think it's, it's all about energy, really. Part-time allegiance lives two separate lives. Uh, half-hearted allegiance is more consistent, but it's lukewarm. And this challenge comes often when, for whatever reason, you're lacking energy. You're tired, you're depressed, you're bored, you're bitter about something, you're just too busy. And so you wave the flag that says, I belong to God, but you wave it in a, yeah, yeah, yay God kind of way. So you go through the motions, but your heart is barely in it. It's kind of half-hearted. It's kind of like the allegiance of a football supporter when they feel like their team is not doing so well. You still go to church, some Sundays anyway. You still pick up your Bible for your quiet time, but two minutes later you're done. Something's missing. Look, to be honest, most Christians, most Christians have faced this challenge more than once. But here's some things to look out for if this is you. Let's go to that idea of devotions. How are your devotions going? Personal Bible reading and prayer is often the first thing to go if you're feeling like you just run off your feet or you're just lacking energy. Now, maybe it's time to go, all right, enough is enough. Time for a spring clean, let's get started again. Um, Here's a good thing to do, maybe start by reading the Psalms. I mean, yes, we're doing them next term, so that'll be helpful, but also because they show that personal worship is just as much expressed in phrases like, Lord, I need your help, and Lord, I feel far from you, please restore me, as it is in, Lord, you're wonderful and great. Create habits of worship in your life. Worship so that you might worship. Another thing to look out for, um, if this is you, is potentially there might be an area of persistent sin in your life. So your worship could be half-hearted because part of you is actually hardened towards God and is stumbling going, blah, 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 don't want to hear it. You're, you're, you're doing something that is not pleasing to God. Your sinful rebelliousness is starting to flex. So maybe that could be an explanation. So search yourself. Is there a stubborn area of sin that you need to address and deal with? If there is, don't think that it's not going to interfere with your worship. Of course it is. So my encouragement to you is to pray what David prays in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and you a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Praise God that that's not a reality under the new covenant. That's a wonderful blessing. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But that last verse there, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's a great prayer. Please pray it. The third challenge is mixed allegiance. The worship of God coinciding with the worship of something else. So, 
I go for Manly and the Bulldogs, as if that would ever happen. Um, I like to think of myself as a capitalist communist. Um, Yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, There's a religious term for this and it's called syncretism. Syncretism, the joining together of two different faiths. That was the problem that Israel and Judah had. It's not that they stopped worshipping God, if you read your Old Testament. It's just that they decided to mix it. They decided to meld it in with the worship of the other gods around them. They wanted to give their allegiance to both the Lord and Baal, and the Lord and Asherah, and the Lord and Molech. But God will not put up with rivals. And the two biggest rivals for God, I think, in our time are these. First of all, it's money. I don't know how clearly Jesus has to be, really, but you can't serve both God and money. Well, how do you know? How do you know if you're serving God and money? Well, maybe this is a test. When worship of God needs to ask for money's approval first. When worship of God needs to ask for money's approval first. Well, that tells you who's acting as master at the moment. What should money compare to seeing the kingdom of your God advance? What should money compare to seeing more and more people hear the good news about Jesus, your Saviour? Think about this. Under the schoolmaster of the law, every Israelite gave 10% of all they had to the work of God. Should those who live under God's grace be less generous? If the work of God in your own church and in the wider world gets your small change or nothing at all, can I say you've got a worship problem? That's what the problem is. It's about the allegiance of your heart. God's got a rival and the symbol of that rival is not a cross, it's a dollar sign. And you need to deal with it. You are, as James chapter 5, verse 3 puts it, hoarding wealth in the last days. Now, it's not easy by any means. No one is saying be reckless and impoverish yourself. But we need to call it out. If worship is whole of life, then you worship God with your wallet as well. He's got to be number one there too. We need the perspective that Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The second biggest rival in our syncretistic lives sometimes for God is is ambition. Sometimes our dreams for ourselves or our hopes for the things that we will enjoy in this life, draw more of our energy and resources and time and hope than our God does. Now, for those who have been called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is a problem, right? Like with money, it's not 
that we want nothing to do with God or that we plan on ditching God. It's just that God ends up taking the back seat while our ambition takes hold of the wheel, driving our actions, driving our attitudes, our ambitions for our worldly success or the worldly success of our children can be above their spiritual flourishing. Which is your biggest desire for your children if you're a parent? Is it their faith? Or is it whether they're good at sport? Or or smart and get a good job? Or our ambitions for our own prestige or success at work? Or our lifestyle ambitions? Or our relationship ambitions? But the thing about worshipping someone is that they matter more to you than you do. Worshipping God does not necessarily mean that we're not going to enjoy any of those things or even put some work towards them. But that our allegiance to him might mean that we're ready to let some of those other opportunities go past because they're not our highest priority. God is. We want to have minds that are so transformed that we're happy, actually happy to see such opportunities go past if necessary because we're seeking after God's good, pleasing and perfect will. And when that happens, that's when we rejoice. When opportunities to further the kingdom of our God turn up and compete with these ambitions, we should need a lot of convincing not to take up those godly opportunities. Well, there are some of the challenges. Here's a a virtue that we should replace them with. Joyful and willing humility is actually the life partner of worship. A willingness to empty oneself and submit oneself absolutely and adoringly under God, to actually adore him. An attitude that delights in looking upwards, that delights in humble adoration, that where we go, I don't want to move from here. The view is so good. The attitude of our great high priest, in fact, who for the joy set before him endured the cross who cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, when he was on it, who is exalted to the highest place because he lovingly made himself nothing. And it's an attitude that we can share for it comes from a profound and joyful security in Christ, which is what we actually have. For the more that our own conceits get stripped away, the more plainly we see how glorious it is. It's it's like like a a messy floor that's covered in all of this stuff and and you pull out all the jumpers and the stinking bits of old food and everything like that and you see that underneath it is gold. Humility, the stripping away of our own pretensions, shows us the treasure of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is enough. And we're going to sing about that now.